Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. I'm delighted to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the review paper, Early Intervention After Perinatal Stroke, Opportunities and Challenges, by Dr. Anna Bazu, which is in the June 2014 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Anna Bazu, NIHR Career Development Fellow and Honorary Consultant Pediatric Neurologist at Newcastle University, UK, and by Professor John Martin, Professor of Physiology, Pharmacology and Neuroscience at City College, City University, New York, USA. Can we start with you, please, Dr. Bazu, to outline the paper and its background? So I just wanted to start by saying why I chose this topic. Firstly, perinatal stroke is really not as rare as people think. I've been quite fascinated by the work of Adam Churton in this area, and he points out that actually the stroke risk in the first week of life is higher than during any other single week of life. And then also it's an important area because perinatal stroke is the commonest cause of hemiplegic cerebral palsy, and this is a condition with lifelong morbidity. And there is a lot of effort being placed on therapy interventions, such as constraint and bimanual therapy, in children who've suffered from perinatal stroke. And I've also just completed a trial comparing two forms of therapy in this condition. But what it left me thinking is that earlier intervention could have the potential for even greater improvement in outcomes compared to these sort of relatively late interventions. But perinatal stroke presents a lot of challenges compared with stroke in adults, and in particular the nature of the presentation is very problematic. So stroke in adults can be recognised so easily that fast advertising campaign was launched to teach the general public how to look out for it. But then neonates will present with really very non-specific signs like seizures, encephalopathy, or they might only present months later with emerging upper motor neuron signs. And this is, of course, because the stroke is being superimposed on a developing nervous system. And this very fact leads to the challenges that I've referred to in the title of the review, but then also to the opportunities. So in the article, I was really trying to pull together an overview of the approaches that are being used to look at possible interventions in perinatal stroke. And obviously, some avenues are quite limited, like primary prevention, whereas in adult stroke, you can tackle individual risk factors like hypertension and smoking and so on. But it's really exciting to see how many different avenues are being pursued. So there's some lines of investigation around damage limitation, and these include early neuroprotective strategies like therapeutic hyposermia. And that's very interesting because that's been proven to have been benefit in neonatal HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. But then also some much more experimental things like stem cell transplantation, which is interesting in that it seems to be producing its effect through perhaps release of trophic factors rather than actually producing new neuroglial cells in any great number. But another really interesting opportunity lies, as I mentioned, in the fact that you've got this ongoing marked plasticity in the first two years of life, and in particular you've got the corticospinal tract projections that are still establishing their final pattern, which you start off very much with a bilateral projection, and then it becomes predominantly crossed through an activity-dependent process. Yes, so in in our animal studies, uh, we've identified activity-dependent competition as a basic biological mechanism that helps enable the developing corticospinal system to establish predominantly crossed spinal projections. As Dr. Basso indicated, the corticospinal tract early in development has this bilateral spinal projection, and the tract from each half of the brain competes with the one from the other half in order to establish synaptic connections with spinal cord neurons. It's sort of like a sports competition uh, between equally strong teams. Uh, It ends in a draw. 
where each corticospinal tract achieves strong connections with the opposite side of the spinal cord. But each corticospinal tract, or team as it were, keeps some weak connections with the same side of the spinal cord, the so-called uncrossed corticospinal tract. So that's sort of the normal developmental pattern. But of course, the, the playing field changes after an injury. After a perinatal stroke, the affected hemisphere is much weaker, and it loses much of its spinal connections it would have normally gained during development, and it's lost these connections to the undamaged or stronger side. So keeping with this competition or sporting metaphor, the winning hemisphere takes the cross projections to the spinal cord and most of the uncrossed projections as well. It takes over projections and connections to the spinal cord at the expense of the affected hemisphere. And the problem with that model of what happens in, in terms of the development of abnormal plasticity is that when the unaffected hemisphere maintains these strong and crossed spinal projections, you tend to get a worse motor outcome than if you retain a pattern of predominantly crossed projections. But then the fact that there are these two potential pathways for the outcome offers opportunities for intervention through aiming to promote the normal crossed pattern developing that these kinds of opportunities for intervention simply aren't available or relevant after stroke in adults when that pattern of corticospinal tract projection has already been established. And these kinds of interventional or potential interventional approaches are informed by some really key studies, including those done by my previous supervisor, Professor Eyre, and also by Professor Martin and, and his group. Right, yes. Yeah. So uh, you're referring to some of the studies that we reviewed in a recent uh, article in Developmental Medicine and Channel Neurology last year, where we summarized some of our evidence for activity-dependent competition and how it shapes development of the cortex spinal projections and possible ways to restore a more normal pattern of projection after an early unilateral brain injury. So we're studying an animal model of hemiplegic cerebral palsy in which the corticospinal tract on the affected side of the brain loses its projections to the tract from the unaffected side. And this is similar to hemiplegic cerebral palsy in human babies. Importantly, the unaffected side maintains its uncrossed projections. We found that by encouraging the animal to use its affected limb by a kind of a constraint-induced movement therapy, you know, that is to say that we constrain the unaffected limb, that with this kind of approach, we're able to restore the normal pattern of connections between the cortex and the on the affected side as well as the unaffected side. So it's a sort of unilateral treatment, but it has an impact on development of both the affected and the unaffected hemispheres. So the affected corticospinal tract ends up uh, developing stronger cross projections to the spinal cord, and really importantly, the unaffected side loses much of its aberrant uncrossed projections. So we, we sort of get it both ways. I mean, I think that was a really lovely study. And one of the really important points in the paper summarized in your review was about the timing of the intervention. So that in that model, if you did the restraint and you did early training, you got an improvement in the locomotor recovery. But if you did restraint and late training, you didn't get that improvement in the locomotor outcome. So that's true, Dr. Vassar. Um, earlier was much better, but perhaps uh, not so surprising because uh, we know a great deal about 
critical periods in the development of the motor systems and virtually uh, all the systems of the brain. What was quite interesting was that with both groups, the early intervention and the later intervention, a more normal uh, contralateral corticospinal projection uh, was achieved. But it was only the early group that improved functionally. So that was what was really quite significant. So despite similarities in the effectiveness of the earlier late treatment for helping to reorganize the corticospinal system, it was only that early group that improved their motor function. And so that points to potentially other very important factors influencing motor outcome more than just the pattern of the cross-corticospinal tract. And I think one of those factors that you discussed that seems very important was that we need to be looking at early windows of opportunity for wiring correctly of the spinal cord circuits and that this might be even earlier and more restricted time window, perhaps relating to, say, the first six months of life in man, and that that might be just as important or even more important than that window for corticospinal tract development. Yeah, so in, in, in our study, we looked at development of interneurons in the spinal cord that use acetylcholine as their neurotransmitter. These are called cholinergic interneurons. And we found that these cholinergic interneurons develop during the same early period as when the corticospinal tract developed. And so we, we actually hypothesized that the corticospinal tract was required for the normal development of these interneurons. So there is a kind of an interplay between the developing tract coming from the brain and many of its targets in the spinal cord, these cholinergic interneurons. So in our model of hemiplegic CP, we found that the number of cholinergic interneurons was drastically reduced. Now, we found that there was some improvement in the numbers of cholinergic interneurons and motor recovery after this early intervention with restraint and training, but there was very little change in these cholinergic interneurons with later intervention. So the need for early intervention may have as much to do with the effects on spinal cord circuits as in balancing out connections between the affected and the uh, unaffected hemispheres. Yeah, so it sounds as if it's really important to be able to impact on spinal cord circuitry at an early age, but I feel so clearly another aspect of optimizing the rewiring is, is to get the predominantly crossed pattern of corticospinal tract projections to persist. So especially Professor Ayer's work using TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, certainly showed that the retention of a large ipsilateral projection from the unaffected hemisphere was associated with a poorer outcome than those who had a predominantly crossed projection. The other thing is that it does seem as if it might be possible to impact on the pattern of rewiring. So you did some work, I see, with Kathleen Friel, which was published in 2007, showing that with an early unilateral motor cortex inactivation, you get these abnormalities of corticospinal tract projection, but then switching and briefly inactivating the other side could actually redress the balance. I entirely agree that an early intervention that would help retain as much of the residual cross-projection as possible is likely to lead to the best outcome. But one point that is often overlooked is that the size of the unilateral brain lesion dictates, to a large extent, the size of the ipsilateral corticospinal tract. In particular, there is an inverse relationship between the two projections. The animal studies suggest a reciprocal relationship between the loss 
of the corticospinal tract to injury and a reciprocal maintenance of the uncrossed corticospinal tract from the less affected side. So you're saying that a larger ipsilateral corticospinal tract could just represent basically a larger initial lesion, and that's why it's associated with a worse outcome. Mm-hmm. That's one way to look at it. But could you not also argue that's kind of a bit fatalistic? So that's probably what happens in the untreated states. You've got a large kind of lesion, and you've got the potential to develop a large ipsilateral corticospinal tract. And obviously, after a large unilateral lesion, you are going to lose, you know, significantly damage a number of corticospinal tract fibers from the affected hemisphere. But it, it's, and it is known that if you've got asymmetry of the descending tracts, then you are associated with this poor outcome. But perhaps it might still be reasonable to aim to retain as much of the residual cross-projection as possible rather than just letting this progressive activity-dependent miswiring go ahead. Definitely. I, I completely agree that interrupting the progressive activity-dependent miswiring is really critical. Uh, that's something that has to be interrupted. Um, our animal studies suggest that this can be achieved very effectively with very early intervention. So I, I think that, that that really is very important. But one of the, the points that I think needs to be made is that the ipsilateral corticospinal projection is not always bad. It may be the best option after a substantial loss of corticospinal fibers from the affected side. And after all, it's the only pathway remaining from cortex, the, the ipsilateral projection. And this comes from some recent work, some of which we're doing in, in our lab using an animal model. Um, there's some studies one recently with a colleague of mine, Jason Carmel, that was published in 2014, showing that in the adult animal, electrical stimulation of the motor cortex on the uninjured hemisphere can promote a recovery, even late, uh, sort of chronically, after a unilateral brain injury. So we just don't yet as know the extent to which the connections made by this maintained uncrossed projection are adaptive or maladaptive. It may be that in babies with hemiplegic CP, the uncrossed fibers are not by themselves maladaptive. They may simply be insufficient for substantial compensation for the major loss of that cross pathway. In a sense, the ipsilateral, the so-called uncrossed pathway, is maybe less functional than it is maladaptive. I mean, I think that offers a lot of hope, really, to say that, you know, even in the late stage or in adults, that there is hope to optimize function through the ipsilateral pathways, and that is very exciting. But clearly, in the first instance, I think it's important to try and set up the most normal pattern of projections and circuits with the residual tissue, because it seems likely that actually that will optimize functional connectivity between all of the systems. And speaking more broadly about all of the systems, I guess we haven't even touched on all the other descending tracks that will be contributing to motor recovery, so reticular spinal, rubrospinal, and so on, and then there's the sensory pathways, and then the cortical reorganizations, there's a whole bunch of other connectivity that we haven't got around to discussing. No, that goes on and on. You know, we're learning a lot about how the corticospinal system co-develops with the brainstem systems, especially the rubrospinal system, and there's co-development of the corticospinal projections with proprioceptive afferents postnatally. It's, it's, I think that's going to be a very fruitful area, and unfortunately, we don't, we don't have time to discuss that. 
One one point that I would like to make in terms of uh, sort of overall systems level plasticity is is that we see two general phases, an early and a late phase. And this early phase is the phase in which we'd aim to establish the proper patterns of connections, uh, whereas the later phase where we tend to modify the strength of established connections rather than reshaping the patterns themselves. Whereas there may be much opportunity for early intervention in the first phase, I do think that the later phase should not be overlooked. We know from our work and and many other studies that there is significant corticospinal tract plasticity, like real structural plasticity, that's present later in development and even in maturity. And so this this needs to be tapped into. So I've got a few thoughts about what I would see as the next steps in this field, but what would you see from your point of view is what needs to be done next? Well, I think we need to work out better animal models in order to better understand mechanisms. It may be premature to work out the parameters of interventions in the animal models because that's going to be very difficult to extrapolate to humans. But if we have a better understanding of mechanisms, then we have a good starting point for working with parameters. We already know that uh, constraint-induced movement therapy can be very effective, and that fits in nicely with the studies of uh, Janet Ayer and colleagues and, and our studies looking at competitive interactions between the affected and the unaffected systems. But it's a very powerful tool, early in development, constraint, and we have to be able to implement that without harm. So we have to really understand the boundaries, just how much we can get away with. I think one other exciting area in the human literature is the effectiveness of bimanual interventions. And uh, this is something that we really don't understand the mechanisms of. It seems quite different from the competition mechanism, which is what many of us are, are thinking about. So bimanual therapies uh, need to be much better understood. And I think finally, there are the electrical approaches to uh, modulate the activity of corticospinal systems directly. And here, too, safety is an important factor, but uh, this could be a, a very powerful way to tap into activity-dependent interactions, especially early on. Yeah, well, I would, I would very much agree with that. And from a clinical point of view, I would just add, say, a couple of things that might be important more generally. So. As I've mentioned, sometimes cases of perinatal stroke are not picked up as early as, as we might need them to be to get in with an early time window. So identifying cases early is really important. And partly I would be keen to see the trend to early definitive neuroimaging, particularly after neonatal seizures, to become a, a more standard practice. And this is happening. But, I mean, perinatal stroke is the second commonest cause of neonatal seizures. So early detection of strokes through imaging would identify these cases that we need to be thinking about treating. And secondly, we do need to work on outcome prediction because although imaging has gone a long way with this, techniques such as tractography may add some further information and there might be other ways of looking at early detection of of those that are going to need additional help through looking at emerging abnormal movement patterns and so on. And that's a very interesting avenue. And then finally, we just need to continue to augment the evidence base for early intervention in these cases that we're going to start to find more of. And my review was really just to show that this work is beginning to happen, and that's really very hopeful and exciting. So we've now come to the end of this podcast. Very many thanks indeed to Dr. Bazu and Professor Martin 
Just remind our listeners that the article is the review article, Early Intervention After Perinatal Stroke, Opportunities and Challenges, by Anna Bazu in the June 2014 issue.